As we turn to Isaiah chapter 55, there's one thing that I noted about it in the past few weeks. It's just full of gospel invitation and full of mercy. It's included actually uh, as one of the great proof texts in the appendices of our own Westminster Confession of Faith. There's a lovely uh, document there. It's called The Practical Use of Saving Knowledge. And here is one of the great proofs. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6 and 7. And it's used to, to speak of God's warrant for sinners to believe. And so we have here a most hearty invitation from God that is addressed to sinners in the form of a warrant. Now in our legal system, if a warrant is issued, it comes from a judge who authorises it. And it's then given to the police. And they have to uh, do the executing of the warrant that is given to them. And when it's executed, the person generally has to go straight before the court. Because the case has already been submitted concerning it. And the warrant that is issued, it carries with it all of the weight of the law of our own land. It comes from the highest authority. It comes with the seal and the signature of a judge or of a magistrate. And it has to be executed. There is no get out clause in it. It has never been rescinded. And once that warrant is issued then, it has to be executed uh, to those that have their name upon it. So the usage of the word warrant in our confession <clears throat> I find to be very interesting because it signifies the grounds for the justification of sinners to believe in. This is heaven's authorization for sinners to believe the gospel. Maybe you never thought of the gospel as a warrant that God executes and he reaches sinners with it. Even those that don't want to get it. How, how many of us would want to get a warrant served by some policeman or some policewoman? None of us would want to get it. And that's exactly where the sinner is. The sinner doesn't want to get the warrant summoned upon them. And yet God sends his ministers, his messengers, and they have a warrant to apply. And they have a warrant to execute. And they have a summons that must be given to those that have their name on it. I, I see here heaven's highest court. And I see that your soul is arrayed before heaven's highest court this night. And God has a warrant for your soul that he wants to issue this evening. And it has your name upon it. Verse 1 is a great opening a introduction to Isaiah 55. Three times over in this opening verse, the word come is issued. Sometimes in preaching the gospel, there are those, and, and they're nearly hesitant in using the word come, but we shouldn't be hesitant in using the word come because that's what the Holy Spirit uses in the Bible. And this is a key then to the rest of the opening section, which is verse 1 to 5. So the opening invitation to come is extended to all who thirst in verse 1. And there are many people thirsting for many different things in this world that we live in. But you know the thirst, the thirst of the soul is that which the gospel is addressed to. And those who have thirsting souls, God says, come. In verse 1, the abundance of God's grace, it's, it's pictured like as a river. There is an abundant supply. And that river reminds us not only the river of God's mercy and grace, 
But it reminds us also of the river that there is to wash away sin. That fountain that was opened up for sin and uncleanness in the house of David. The inability of sinners to come is not seen as a hindrance. I take great encouragement in that in itself. Because those who have no money are still invited. Even if you haven't got anything to buy with, you're still invited to come. And sinners are urged to take freely what is offered there. They're urged to eat and to buy wine and milk. In other words, to close in with the offer of grace and with the proffer of mercy. In verse 2, they're gently admonished as to why. Why would they try to work their way to heaven when grace is free? Verse 2 reminds us that, that only that which God offers freely can satisfy the longing of the soul. You know, it's amazing. You can go in to any shop and you'll find this to be true. You find the bargain shelf and you'll find the, the dear shelf. And, and people, you would think they'd be drawn to the bargain shelf. No, no. They're, they're drawn to the other shelf. Because they deem it not to be worthy enough. But the gospel is free. It's not on the bargain shelf. Because it's without money. And it's without price. Verse 3 emphasizes that with those who believe and receive the gospel, God enters into an everlasting covenant. Verse 4 and 5 emphasizes as if, we're, as if to confirm and persuade us of the reality between the covenant of God and the believer. We read about God's fourfold gift of his one and his only son. So this is, this is a warrant that comes with heaven's stamp of authority upon it. And I'm glad as a minister of the gospel, I have been given the privilege to execute it. Verse 6 and 7 is at the very center of the, the chapter. And it's just simply the gospel invitation outlined. So here we have the warrant. Here we have the outlining of the warrant. If you want to know what the detail of what this warrant says... It's not just come, but here's the invitation of how to come in verse 6 and verse 7. It's upon verse 6 and 7 that I want to direct your attention to this evening. The gospel is not only extended in the gospel uh, invitation, but we're even taught how the invitation is to be accepted. How do you accept this invitation of grace? That's the question, and that's the answer of Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Well, first of all, there's a personal urgency outlined here in seeking after God. Verse 6 tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. We know the natural man who's born in sin doesn't seek after God. Just to draw the comparison, there is none of us would, would go looking for the warrant to be a executed upon us the natural man does not seek God in and of himself uh, Psalm 14 verse 2 and 3 tells us this and, and Paul took it and he outlined it in Romans 3 verse 11 and 12 the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God you know, sometimes we, we have all of this wonderful romantic notion of missionary work that there are millions of people out there and they're, and they're just waiting to come for the preacher to come with the gospel. They're not. They're not. 
Sometimes we imagine here and on alone, there are souls and they're bound to be seeking. They're not. They're hiding. They're running. Because that's what the natural man has always done. Because he can't do anything else. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that, that sought God. But what did he see? They're all gone aside. And they're all together become filthy. And there's none that doeth good, no, not one. And those were the, the, the nuns that Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. None that seeketh after God, none that doeth good. You can read about them there. And the Bible is very plain because men in their sin, they don't seek after God. They don't seek after God. They are estranged from him. But still, this is an urgent message from God for them. And that's why God commissions ministers, missionaries, preachers of the gospel. And they've got a warrant to serve. And the minister comes, the, the evangelist comes, or the earnest Christian comes. And in God's stead, they have a warrant to serve upon the souls of individuals. And that warrant has a name upon it. And it's got your name upon it tonight, dear sinner. If you're here without the Savior, your name is upon that warrant. And it's a warrant to believe and to receive the gospel. In verse 5, the prophet speaks of the Gentiles. Remember, he's speaking to the Jewish nation who would run to the Messiah. They had heard God call and God had worked in their hearts and God had worked in their lives and they had responded. And now Isaiah stirs up the Jews that he ministers to and he said, why should you linger whilst others are seeking? It's now their time to seek after God. You know, I always love to bring reports to this pulpit and to the congregation here and on alone of precious souls coming to the Lord. And it's lovely to tell of ones coming to Christ in Uganda. What a, a harvest there's been there in the past few months. God has been really working and moving and many have been brought to Christ. What a, a joy it has been to hear of ones coming to the Lord in Kenya in Pakistan, in Nepal, in many different places, God is working and souls are being gathered in to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was how Isaiah addressed the Jews. He said, listen, God's working hither and thither, all over the place, and the Gentiles are running. They're running to the Messiah. But now it's your time to seek after the Lord. And whilst it's good to hear of all these other people that are coming to the Lord. Now we come to Anna Long tonight on the 24th of July 2022. And God says this is your time tonight to seek after the Lord. The Bible teaches us about the sincerity of those who seek after God. Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. You need to have sincerity to seek after God. You need to have the whole heart in seeking after God. I remember Dr. Alan Kearns telling me many years ago of being in the inquiry room and a, a, a group of young people came into the inquiry room and they were laughing and they, they were tittering with each other they, they were just there as it were to see what was happening and he spoke to them and put them out of the inquiry room because they weren't seeking sincerely 
This is not a trivial matter. Do you know it's not a trivial matter, men and women, when the police officer puts that warrant before you and you're under arrest? That's no trivial matter. And it's no trivial matter when the minister of the gospel comes with a message from God and he puts it before you. You're under arrest. God has a message for you. You're under arrest. You need to seek him because the implication is there's a time coming when you're not going to find him. Just for a moment consider what would happen if God forsakes the sinner who slights the offer of grace. What would happen if God were to withdraw his spirit's strivings from your heart and your life and you'd never hear the pleadings of the spirit again within your soul? You would be in hell before you're dead. I listened to R.C. Sproul preach a few mornings ago on that wonderful passage in Luke's Gospel where Jesus told his disciples where they reject the message of the Gospel that, they, that he said that they were to shake off the very dust of that place from off their feet and they were to move on. You see, that was their time to hear. Now the messengers were moved on. I think it's the most solemn thing. Because what happens for those who have lost their moment? What happens for those who have lost their moment? Well, they die in their sins. Because that's all they can do. They must die. But they die in sin, under condemnation, and are lost for all eternity. The verse underscores for us the importance of the present moment. You have to guarantee this present moment. And I would urge you don't let another moment pass you by. The present opportunity to seek the Lord. To call upon the Lord's great name. And I don't want you to think I'm being an alarmist. I'm trying to emotionally blackmail anyone. Because this is an urgent matter. Jesus said yet a little while is the light with you. It's just there a little while. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. The darkness soon settles. You have the light that moment just for that little time. And this is your little time. This is your moment to seek the Lord while he may be found. And the Saviour gives the reassurance that if you seek, you will find how wonderful is the gospel? I marvel at this wonderful message that God has given to men to proclaim. That if you seek him, he will be found. Secondly, consider with me how this invitation is accepted. Well, it's accepted by calling upon the name of the Lord. Look at verse 6 once again, the latter part. Call ye upon him. Call ye upon him. Now we know there's a general sense of calling upon the Lord. We have looked before at Seth and to the line of Seth in Genesis 4.26. Those who were in the line of Seth were, were denoted as those who began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
It's an evidence that you're a Christian if you call upon the name of the Lord. If you haven't called upon the name of the Lord today, or yesterday, or the week that's passed, or the month that's passed, Maybe even the year that's passed. There's not a thing to say that you belong to the Lord. Not a thing. The greatest evidence of regeneration is calling upon the name of the Lord. Remember how the Lord convinced faithful Ananias of Saul of Tarsus that he now was converted to safe for you to go and speak to him. What did he tell him? Behold, he prayeth. That's what makes the difference. And I want to ask you all tonight, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you just on your prayer life that you are a Christian? Tell me, where is the evidence? The specific reference though in Isaiah 55 and 6 has to do with imploring the mercy of God, seeking the mercy of God, calling upon God for mercy. And that was a thing that the ancient prophets were very familiar with. The book of Joel, for example, Joel 2.32, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. That was the word that Peter took on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and he incorporated it there and he put it like this, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, to be delivered, to be saved is one and the same thing. And we're glad that Romans 10 and 12 tells us there's no difference between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich unto uh, all that call upon him. For whosoever, wonderful, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you want to be saved, you've got to call upon the Lord. Here's the appropriation of salvation. Sinner going out into hell justly. Fully deserving of his penalty. He's on the very precipice of the lost eternity. But he calls upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord delivers him. Why? Well Isaiah knew the answer to that. He knew the answer. Not because God closed his eyes at the sin of that sinner. Not because God had set aside his law book. Because the warrant now was issued for the arrest of this individual. And for this individual to believe. But I'll tell you why. Because Isaiah wrote chapter 53. Because Isaiah knew that God had punished another in that one stead. Isaiah 53, of course, is one of the great messianic chapters of the Old Testament where it wonderfully portrays the crosswork of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the suffering servant. Verse 4 teaches us that he has borne our griefs. There's not a grief. There's, there's not a guilt that you have ever carried that Jesus didn't bear at all on Calvary's tree. Verse 5 informs us that it was for our transgressions that he was bruised. Verse 6 tells us on him was laid the iniquity, the judgment of us all. It was our griefs, not his griefs. It was our transgressions, not his transgressions. It was our judgment that was laid upon him. Why? Because he was there as the great substitute. He was there in the sinner's stead and in the sinner's place. I died that you might live. 
I died that you might be delivered. And if you call in faith, you will be saved. There's not a doubt about it. Oh, how wicked. I, I think, how wicked is that sinful individual who on the precipice of hell, God offers a way of escape and that individual is so hardened in his or her sin that they reject it. And persist in their impenitence and are lost. The prophet adds this little clause here. While he is near. I love the fact that when the gospel is preached. The Lord is near. There's no message that the Lord is so near to. As is the gospel. We read in Romans 10. 6 and 7 again. Uh, but the righteousness which is of faith. Speaketh on this way. Say not in thine heart. Who shall ascend up into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from heaven. Or who shall descend into the deep. That is to bring up Christ from the dead. But what saith it. The word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart. And that is the word of faith which we preach. The Lord is near. Because this is the word of faith. This is his word. His word, God's word to your heart and my heart. That's how near God is. What did God think of you tonight? Well, he thought so much of you, he sent his word to you. It couldn't be any more special than that. It couldn't be any greater than that. God sent his word to this little village of Amalong, to this congregation of God's people. He sent it to you tonight. Oh, the Lord is near. Don't pass him by. And don't let him pass by you tonight. Thirdly, the invitation has to be accepted by the penitent heart. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his ways. Israel had forsaken the Lord. Isaiah outlined that in very vivid fashion as the book opened up. Isaiah 1 and verse 4, he said, A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. They have forsaken the Lord. And now Isaiah says, If you forsake your sin and turn unto the Lord, he will abundantly pardon you. The wicked have to forsake their way of life. God doesn't save people to go on in sin. God saves people in sin to deliver them from it. I'm glad you don't have to clean up your life. You just come as you are. And he'll clean up your life. That's what grace does. Grace cleans up the foulest. And enables them to be victorious over the sins that are the most binding upon their life. The wicked have to forsake their way of life. Not only is repentance concerned with the outward life, it's also concerned with the inner life. Uh, and verse 7 addresses this because it speaks about his thoughts. There are some people today and they say, well, <clears throat> so long as you don't actually do the deed, it doesn't really matter what your inclination in your heart is toward the deed. Well, that's a lot of nonsense. 
You have to repent in your very thoughts and return unto the Lord. Return unto the Lord Jehovah because he's the only one that can give you mercy. Nobody else can give you mercy. Those who thus return to God, the end of verse 7 tells us, they will be abundantly pardoned. Not just pardoned, but abundantly pardoned. What does that really mean? It means every sin forgiven. It's all gone. All your sins gone, forgiven. Put in God's sea of his forgetfulness, never to be remembered against you ever, ever again. Someone put a sign there. In that sea of God's forgetfulness, and the sign said, no more fishing. Don't go looking for them. Because God says he's forgotten about them. He has deliberately chosen to forget about them. They're all pardoned. An abundant pardon. You often sing that lovely hymn, pardon, pardon from an offended God. Pardon for sins of deepest dye. Pardon bestowed through Jesus' blood. Pardon that brings the rebel nigh. Who has a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and so free? We all deserve a thousand judgments. But instead God gives us abundant pardons. And when the pardon is given, what happens? Well, the sentence then is repealed. It is remitted. We're no longer under judgment. We will not be judged because Christ was judged in our stead. We will have to answer for our works, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I'm glad there was one who answered for my sin, who paid it all on the center cross of Calvary. At the start we have this wonderful invitation come, open to all. In the middle we have the how to. At the end of the chapter then we're told the consequences of it because when the curse of sin has been removed, verse 13 reminds us that it is reversed. The curse is then reversed. Instead of the thorn, remember it came with the curse, verse 13, shall come up the fir tree. Now we see evidences of grace. No evidences of grace before that. But now we see evidences of grace. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I've never been issued with a warrant or given a warrant. I'm not saying it will never happen. But up to, up to this present point in time, it hasn't happened. But I'm glad I have the gospel warrant to present to you. And God is your name upon it tonight. And God's waiting for your yielding unto that authoritative command. I can't get out of my mind uh, John Calvin's motto. I offer my heart to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. And that's all the Lord is asking of each one of us tonight, saved and unsaved alike. This is the invitation. If you've never accepted it, offer to the Lord your heart tonight, your life. 
sincerely and promptly. And you'll find an abundant pardon in the wonderful grace of our wonderful God. Isaiah was the evangelical prophet of the Old Testament scriptures. What a gospel he had to proclaim. What a gospel warrant we have to execute tonight in Christ's name. And I pray that you'll offer to God your heart tonight. Sincerely and promptly. Just know his grace.